The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We're going to be taking the next few months and looking at the Buddhist teachings on path. And uh, we'll have a couple books available at Moon Palace Books, which is very close to here. Um, and we normally list, have the link for these books on the weekly email where we're talking about the weekly practice group, Sunday morning, Sunday night, like we're doing now, and Wednesday night. Um, and over the next couple of months, I'll be talking about the different aspects of the path that the Buddha laid out. But as I mentioned briefly last week, it's really this natural dynamic, a human being that's not completely overwhelmed by life and is able to be somewhat reflective, there is a real moment. And for some of us, it might have been a gradual coming online. And for a few of us, it might have been a very distinct time in your life you can actually remember where in terms of your position as a human being in relationship to life, navigating your life, doing your life, became really clear that it really matters how I'm showing up, how I'm relating. And not just it matters to me, it matters to everybody how I am, how I'm relating, how I'm understanding. It matters. Because a lot, I mean, the most pervasive expression of ignorance, you may not like to hear this, it's kind of provocative, but the most pervasive expression of ignorance is, and because this is what, who we are, what we're doing most of the time, thinking it doesn't matter. Like being here in the room, listening to me talk, right now at least, it would be relatively common for most of us to be thinking it doesn't really matter how I'm sitting, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing with my mind. That's the default for most of us most of the time. Oh, I'm just with my partner. I don't have to be on good behavior. And it's not that being on good behavior actually makes you more skillful. <laughs> but it's just a question of the reason my the feeling is the way that the heart is and the way my life is appearing to me, this experience as a human being arises out of causes and conditions. And not an insignificant part of those causes and conditions is how I've been relating in the past. So if I want to have a clearer sense of like, how have I been relating in the past, skillfully, unskillfully, wisely, unwisely, well, how I'm relating right now and how it feels being here, relating in the way I'm relating, showing up to this moment and way. This is the reflection or the manifestation of how the mind's been relating in the past. We're literally creating our life, shaping our life, and shaping the world moment by moment based on how we're relating. And this is an insight, like I said, doesn't always come online all at once, but we kind of gradually realize that it matters. You know, where it shows up is not so much when you're around other people, but when you realize even when you're home alone, nobody's watching, that it matters. Like what you're doing with your mind, how you're eating, how you're taking care of your body, what you're feeding your mind. You know, a lot of times we think, well, if nobody's watching, I can get away with being neurotic. Right? Don't we think that way? I mean, not we wouldn't say that out loud, but that's actually how we live a lot of the time. But the more we practice, the more we realize it always matters what we're doing, how we're relating, because it's always shaping the mind stream, how we're relating. We're always cultivating 
sometimes we say causes and conditions. So when we realize it matters, then we bring that vigilance, that interest—excuse me—interest into our actions. Okay, how am I interacting with this person? And it's not like we can draw a clean or clear conclusion, but we're interested. Like, what am I setting in motion? Given that I'm talking in this way, given that my body language is like this, what's getting set in motion? And we don't get an answer to that question, but we sense, right? We're interested, we're curious, and in a way we're feeling into our life to see, well, what's left now that that interaction just ended? What's left over? What's the impression that's left over from just having said or done what I just did? Oh, this is what's left over. Well, what does that feel like? Heavy? Is it heavy karma? Or is it light karma? You know, did I plant seeds of stress or seeds of release? You know how it is if we've had a relatively good day where we've you know, been relatively skillful and navigated the difficult situations with some wisdom and not too many primitive, unhelpful, conditioned habits got triggered, then at the end of the day, we feel relatively light and clean. Oh yeah, this is the impression left over from the life I lived today. feels like this. And we can actually begin to intuit what's uh, like the relative skillfulness or unskillfulness of how we've been. Now, it could have been a horrendous day. Bad things have happened, but I handled it pretty well. So it doesn't mean I had a good day in the sense that everybody liked me. It's really about how did I relate to what showed up? What did I what impressions were left over. Right? Because I've had some really uh, bad, you know, so-called bad things happen to me, but the aftertaste was a lot of freedom because I realized given the bad thing that happened, I could have reacted in a way that would have really made a mess for myself and others, but I didn't. And I felt, I'm just thinking of one particular situation where I felt so much lightness and freedom, not because it was a good thing that happened, but because my mind really was there and it was skillful. It didn't compound the difficult circumstances with negative reactivity, with greed, with aversion, with fear. It did what needed to be done. It really took care, like out of compassion for my life, out of compassion for the situation, I did what I needed to do. And so it felt really good, even though there are some complications from the difficulty that arose. And just like we might have had a really beautiful day, a lot of good things happened, but you know, we kind of spoiled it because we wanted it to last, we wanted it to be even better than it was, somebody else got more than we did, even though we got a lot, you know, so we can have a really unpleasant, heavy aftertaste, even when it's been a really nice day. And I bet, you know, and I'm going to save some time for people to check in this evening. It would be nice to check in. These are useful things to share about how many moments the mind has spoiled the moment, right? That conditions are relative good, circumstances are rel- relatively good, but the mind contributes some heavy way of relating. Greed, jealousy, anger, whatever it might be. And then that's the impression that's left. That's what's left over. Because we could have a sunny day. Well, the sunny day is going to come and go. But if I act out during the sunny day, that impression lives on in a way in our hearts. And that's really the first part of the path, knowing that it matters. And then we begin to pay attention to our actions, our words, how we find our way in life and survive and earn a living. 
and we take that understanding in terms of how we take care of our mind. Like once we realize that everything matters, then even how I take care of my own heart and mind matters. What I feed it, like what kind of material, media I feed my mind, what I do with my mind. Uh, we we sort of, you know, we're, we can be somewhat bodily body obsessed, like taking care of the body, spending hundreds of dollars on supplements, but it's just interesting that we don't have that same attitude about our mind. Oh yeah, I have a mind, an ecosystem, as I think I called it last week, the ecosystem of the mind, heart. How can I take care of it? So this, this is where that attention, that sensitivity, oh my goodness, it matters how I'm relating to my external life and how I'm relating to my internal life, just to kind of keep it simple in that way. We start to pay attention. Now I'm going to break it down as we go ahead, but let me just stop here for a while and just see if there are any comments, because, you know, we've all been living for a while, and you know this question of path is really the, well, what am I doing? What's the point? And what the Buddha suggests, you know, he, in, at the culture at the time, there's this idea of rebirth, as a lot of you know. Uh, I think it's useful to not close our minds about that and to really have this humility, like, we don't know. I don't know if, it, does anybody know? No, we don't know, probably, what happens at the time of death. We know the body ceases, Right, ceases to be alive, but we actually don't know what happens to the mind. And so there's this sense of, like somebody once asked a Western Tibetan monk, or not a Tibetan monk, but a Tibetan teacher, you know, what gets reborn? And his answer was, what the neurotic qualities get reborn? What the unfinished business gets reborn? So these are the impressions I'm talking about, like what is left over? moment by moment, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of our 40s, right, at the end of our life, what's left over? Given how we've been relating in all those moments, what sort of seeds got planted? Seeds that have the nature to you know, sprout and express themselves. What's left over? And that's what the Buddha, like this mundane or this initial level of wisdom, that's how we know we're sort of risen above just someone trying to survive, an animal trying to survive, which, you know, sometimes that's, that's our truth. We're just trying to get by. But when we have enough privilege, enough space, enough resources, then we get reflective about how we're living and what's left over, or what's getting set in motion. And is that what I want to set in motion? And it's sort of, you could call this a moral, spiritual consciousness, like it matters. I, and there's some opening in the mind that, whatever you want to call it, freedom, like there's, there's a different ways that things could unfold. It could get really heavy and oppressive, or perhaps it could get really free, full of love and wisdom and skill. And the thing is that taking birth into that understanding is important because all of a sudden how we relate, what we do in life changes when we realize I can be setting emotion hell or I can be setting in motion something really beautiful. So let me learn how to read, to sense out whether the way I'm relating, the way I'm showing up is skillful, setting in motion something beautiful, or the way I'm showing up in my life, the way I'm handling something is unskillful. I'm setting in motion hell for myself and others because we care. So it really is grounded in compassion. Because I care, 
I care about what I'm setting in motion. And you might have learned a thing or two, learning to read your life, what's skillful, what's unskillful. So, you know, in the next weeks, I'm going to be talking about what the Buddha, you know, provocatively, he calls these eight steps or the eight limbs of the Eightfold Path, wise view, wise intention, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And so it's really about understanding all the ways that we have to show up and what is left over when we're showing up in that way. What carries on in the mind stream to the next moment because I related in this way. And I bet, I'm guessing, some of us have learned a thing or two. So please share. And of course, any questions that you have, please start us off, Andrew. Um, so I actually wanted to share something that I've been learning um, from about doubt lately. Um, as I've been at a period in my practice where there's been a lot of momentum and so a lot of like habits and patterns are, are changing really rapidly, which made it really easy to see when um, all of a sudden that like doubt or that mind of like, oh, I'm like doomed or I'm stuck like this arises because it still feels just as true or compelling in the moment, but the, the evidence just doesn't support it. And uh, like even though on one hand I can see how it's it's doubt, you know, like doubt in the practice, like experientially for me, like it also feels a lot like certainty you know like that i know i know what this is and like i um and as i've be- like become interested in recognizing that like to me and like sussing out like when that energetic quality is present like it almost feels like this like pressure or this like fuzzing out at the the top of my head and just like a thumb over a straw you know it kind of stops the energy for moving and becomes this like self-fulfilling prophecy of like, oh yeah, it's going to play out like this because I've felt this before. And like when I can notice that and uh, remind myself that like, oh wait, I actually have no idea what this is. And like the fact that it's coming up, like even if it's something unpleasant, which it usually is, I can be grateful for the opportunity to to see it and uh, understand it. Because if I did understand it, it probably wouldn't be coming up again. And uh So that's that's just been a really uh, powerful, interesting place. Because and sometimes there's there's some resistance to that, even when it does occur to me. Because it's like, oh, I don't, I don't want to have to be present with. It. I want to know what it is and have an excuse to not engage with it. Because you know, often it's something really intense or unpleasant. And like, even though I say I want it to like clear a process, what I really want is for it to just not exist. Because the reality of that experience is that like that unpleasant energy has to move and then that feeling like moves into other areas of my body where I'm not used to feeling it and even though that's what I want is some progression like that experience is very uncomfortable and uh, the mind likes wants to identify so if if you, it learns not to like that there are consequences to identifying with doubt then it it will demand another thing so if I'm not full of doubt then who am I and and like in a lot of therapeutic settings, we'll give ourselves another identity. Here, try this identity on. It's healthier than that identity of being bad or whatever we might think. But the more we practice, the more we realize that it can be really open or fluid or even ambiguous, and that's okay. But it's an acquired taste to learn that things can remain undefined. Right. Yeah, it it took a while even to be because I would use that certainty of like I know what this is for for good things too, and it took a while to realize and become comfortable with this like idea of I don't know like doesn't have to be scary that it can actually be enlivening like you know I don't know for good things it could be better and I don't know for bad things like maybe it's good like maybe it's good that this is coming up it's an opportunity to understand something but I had to had to really wear out that habit of like wanting to make it what I thought it was. To, so instead of the awakening process, whatever you think like bad to good is, that you know, linear path, you know, you might find that over time, not being confused by that linear path turns out to be the path. Does that make sense? 
like not being so ego in an egoic way, uh, so tied to conceit, to being here, you know, ranking in some hierarchical system. Not afraid of hierarchical systems, but not dependent on it at the same time. Like if you're rejecting a hierarchical, the hierarchical systems in your life, you know, like how society works, then you're still tied to it. You're still bound by it. So whether you're playing the game and you want to win at the game or you're saying, I'm not going to play that game, you're still in the game. But to sort of be a human being, which is hierarchical, like society, the way it works in so many subtle and not so subtle ways, but not be confused by it. There's so much freedom in that. So like if we, you know, are you a good person? Or are you an advanced spiritual person? Or just a rank beginner, not very advanced at all? You know, like, it's, these are interesting questions. Because on the relative normal social level, we have ways of answering those kinds of questions, you know. But we don't have to be fooled or confused by the answer we might give in a situation that is somehow about locating myself in terms of class, in terms of experience, in terms of expertise, in terms of some kind of status. We don't have to be confused by that stuff. And it's just really interesting, like an example might be, I'm sure some of you are parents, and you might be like in that situation with one of your kids <coughs> in the parental role, laying down the law for the 13-year-old or something like that. No, you can do this. But that's it. Then you got to come home or whatever, and this is what you can't do. And you're like really owning the role, and it's sort of like this space around it where you know the whole thing is, in a sense, artificial like that the kid might, in moments, have more clarity than you do, right? More wisdom than you do. But still, you got to play your role. Like you could. It wouldn't be appropriate in your social role to say that to the kid. You know, I don't really know more than you, <laughs> but I got to choose. So I'm, this is what I'm, you know, this is what I'm going to say. But you can, we can kind of see that sometimes. Both, both like with like I probably, I could know more than that person, or I could. So both ends. Like we want to be careful that we're not always putting ourselves below but that we're really realizing that all of this hierarchical stuff is a construct. But that's okay. Does it make it bad that it's a construct? There's lots of constructs that we're playing with, part of, participating in. No way around it. But we can train, the mind can be trained to be honest. It's a construct. Yeah, thanks, Andrew, for getting us going. Other reflections or questions about path, about understanding, like how practice, spiritual practice, or just being awake more in your life? What's gotten clarified? Hi, my name is Brenda. Um, I use she, her, her pronouns. Um, I find it really interesting. Uh, recently, I have been thinking a lot about my future happiness, you know, how you were talking about earlier. And I think it, it took me a long time because I had to come to a point where I really cared about my future happiness. I had to care enough about me to care about my future happiness. And it's been really interesting So, because I'm trying to be really mindful about it, and I'm noticing, like, every decision that comes up in my day affects my future happiness so and I'm finding it interesting how sometimes I'm like yes I'm going to do this because this is good for my future happiness and then sometimes I'm just like I'm going to do it even though I'm going to feel like shit afterward you know it's like I'm consciously making those decisions but I'm sort of I'm making more of the healthy decisions because I'm aware of it I'm still making the bad ones and I haven't really wrapped my head around that like you know take a breath or do whatever I have to do to, to start caring more about my future happiness because every little tiny thing to me that's karma every little tiny thing no matter what i do affects my future happiness and if i want to live a happy life then what i do today or what i do in this moment affects how i feel in the next moment 
And so I'm, I'm finding it interesting. And do you have any tips on, on you know, when you don't do the thing that's going to give you future happiness, like how to be more mindful of that and, and make better choices? Well, we're, we are rebellious. And I think it makes sense because it's a heavy trip to have to be owning responsibility that everything matters. And uh, so then we act out. I know everything matters, but I'm going to do this anyway, even though I know it matters. And in this case, it's not contributing, right? But in a way, there's even some wisdom in that because this isn't, this is, I, I think I used the word mundane wisdom. It's initial level wisdom that everything matters. It's not the ultimate wisdom, right? But it's an essential wisdom to learn how to own, that everything matters. But the more we own that everything matters, the more we sense how oppressive it is that everything matters. It is oppressive. Like what time you go to bed tonight matters. And whether you eat a lot of food before you go to bed matters. And how you treat your partner or how you relate to your cat tonight or your dog it matters. It sets things in motion. And whether you, what kind of news articles you read tonight and how you relate to the people you work with tomorrow, all of that matters. It's creating, it's setting stuff in motion. And we just don't want to exist in that world. And we even have some intuition. It doesn't have to be so heavy, right? This like responsibility doesn't... But we take the wrong move and we <clears throat> kind of do the easy thing, be <coughs> excuse me, that rebellious teenager kind of move where I'm going to do it anyway. But as the practice keeps going, we start a different or a more subtle insight begins to arise that everything matters and that nobody... It's like everything matters. So in a, in a kind of more scientific sense, that means there's cause and effect. It's lawful. It's conditional. But it doesn't refer back to anybody. And what that does is it makes being good light. But we don't get to that place where being good, being wise, being good, doing the right thing, refraining from doing the wrong thing, that initially has to be heavy because we're moving from uh, a less skillful point of view, which is, I don't think it matters. I don't want it to matter. I'm going to pretend that it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going after short-term pleasure. Screw the long-term, right? That's kind of one level. And then we realize that doesn't really work. And we gradually move into, it does matter. I'm going to pay attention. I'm willing to become more sensitive, even though it's oppressive to be sensitive and to feel and sense that everything matters. And when I say something to my partner, and it was sort of good enough in my old life, but now that I'm sensitive, it's no longer, I feel badly for what I said. So now i got to go back and unpack that with that person because it's no longer acceptable for me to have acted in that way. It leaves a heavy trace. And now I've got to deal with that. I would, In some ways, we'd like to be. But the more we stick with that sense of resp personal responsibility for karma, karma just means that our, the quality of our intentions and motivations matter because they leave an impression. When we act a certain way, it leaves an impression. If it's a skillful way we've been acting, it leaves a good impression. If it's an unskillful way, it leaves a heavy impression. But the more we do that work, then an, a more subtle understanding begins to gradually come online, which is the most skillful way is to be skillful, but to see that skillfulness as an empty natural process, empty of me, empty of selfing. So that we've set emotion good, but then we tease out 
the wrong idea that I'm being good. Because a lot of people think with this deeper insight, well, why not be bad? Right? But see, bad would only come about from the idea that I'm getting a break by being bad. Like, oh, you guys are trying to be good, but I'm being bad and I know I'm going to get away with it because it doesn't refer back to anybody. But see, you can't have that understanding and the freedom that comes with teasing out or uprooting that action doesn't refer back to anybody. The mind, the activity of the mind, the activity of the body doesn't refer back. So in this way, the deeper teachings from the Buddha and from other wise people, they're really about like, given that we're living in this world where everything matters, this teaching of it's all nature, not self, it's all a natural process, it doesn't refer back to an entity, me, that is this brilliant idea or this brilliant, um, and it's an idea that points to reality, that liberate, liberates us in being, you know, in being uh, uh, full of care about the details. There's this great line from one of the Buddhist saints that brought Buddhism up into Tibet way back, I think maybe the 13th century, Padmasa Sambhava is the person's name. And he said, although my view, my wisdom, my insight is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma, to the skillfulness of each moment, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So it's precisely because I see how empty, it's just nature, internally, externally. It's just uh, the unfolding of many overlapping or interacting, complex, natural, impersonal processes. Although I understand that I'm totally integrated, that deepest understanding, I'm totally okay being concerned with each detail really showing up. It doesn't make us neglectful or arrogant. It makes, we really can, it allows us to be sensitive and to be concerned with ordinary details, how we're showing up, how we're treating each other, how we might be complicit in cycles of suffering that we were, through culture, trained to be oblivious to. But all of a sudden, we sense it all, how we're part of, you know, oppressive cycles. Yeah, Thank thanks, you. Brenda. Yeah, uh, my name's Dave, and um, I had a question, Mark, or maybe wondering about my understanding of attention. And um, I've been listening to some talks by Joseph Goldstein and on on the aggregates, and I don't know how that relates to you know the Eightfold Path. But he talked about attention as being a, I think he called it a common factor, something that's there all the time, mm-hmm. and that if I'm not mindful, then these mental qualities that are unskillful mental qualities, you know, attention is just gathering those together, and that's my reaction to things. Yeah. And it just bound by habit. Right, and it just and then I I look at my experience and and think back and it's just like whoa when I'm not mindful it's like I can see this all the time playing out I mean it's just it's just uh, well we see this in others don't we it's not so easy to see in us but but we see people some people we love just some you know politicians for example and they're just habit energy. And we see what kind of destruction or difficulties that get set in motion when there's no moral sense of whether this way of speaking, these words being spoken, this way of relating, like no moral sense, ethical sense of what's getting set in motion in my heart and in the world around me and whether that's of value, whether that's contributing to well-being or, you know, being a dead weight in people's hearts. Because that that sort of initial moral sense is how we begin to stabilize so that this more subtle truth starts to come online, that nothing refers back to anything. So that's what dependent co-arising 
It's really understanding our experience as a human being as these natural movements of cause and effect, but complex, right? Not referring back to anything. But that takes the stability of being full of care about our external, like how we're behaving in the world, and internally, how I'm taking care of my mind. Because I think, initially, it really matters. I really get, over time, competent at taking care of my relationships more skillfully, taking care of my heart more skillfully. And that settles things down. Like we're mastering cause and effect. To whatever degree we have a role to play, a card to play, we get better at playing those cards. We're not in control of a lot, of course. But life settles down. We get more competent at navigating our life, fall into less, fewer holes. And then with that more space that comes with being more skillful, the mind can be more reflective and this deeper insight dawns in the mind that it doesn't refer back to anything. It's nature, not self. Everything is in motion. Everything is unfolding lawfully, conditionally. There is cause and effect, but cause and effect doesn't refer back to anybody. And that really allows us, that sort of allows us as a human being to be fearlessly who we are. It's just because we're not burdened by caring about everything. We're not burdened by paying attention, by showing up, by learning. What It doesn't even mean like someone who's awake in that way. They still may have bad habits, but they're totally okay about learning from their mistakes, right? And not making them again. Because it's not heavy to be a human being. That's what awakening does. It takes the heaviness away from being full of care about how we're engaging, how we're acting, how we're thinking, how we're talking. Go ahead, Dave. As far as sitting, it's attention or intention is uh, is a difficult thing to see a lot of times, and it's it's a difficult thing to, to it's so mixed and other you know I can see that at times, and uh, it's I think he's Joseph Goldstein talked about. These about to moments, like like when you're sitting, like if I'm about to move, and I can yeah. I can see some of those things, but it's a real difficult thing to to actually see. For it but you seems can like the feel intention. the impression after the fact. You're right. It it is you know, and a lot of our teachers when they're writing about practice, they're really speaking from longer retreats where they had some pretty good samadhi, some continuity of awareness, concentration. And they're seen in this, in a you know so-called microscopic way, so they can actually clearly see the arising of intention, just like we all can, but just in rare moments. But what we can learn, even though we may not catch the intention real time in the moment, we'll catch it down the road because we'll notice the heart's hurting. Right? We have a sensitive heart, and all of a sudden it will feel yucky. We'll go, "Why am I? Why is my heart hurting?" And then if we're not overwhelmed in that moment, we'll, in a sense, think back. And the mind is actually, this is actually a very good use of imagination, where we're sort of using imagination, we're tracing back, and we're realizing, oh, the mind was motivated, had this intention, spoken this way, ended up with this feeling. Oh, that wasn't helpful. Or that was helpful, that was beautiful, that was skillful. And we, so we're relying on the truth of suffering or what is left over in the heart. You know, the burden, the weightfulness, the heaviness of entanglement, the aches, right? Because if we're living cleanly enough, you know, where we're not, in Buddhism we say breaking the precepts, stealing, lying, sleeping around in a way that causes a lot of harm, taking what's not ours, you know, hitting, causing harm. Well, if we're really careful about living in harmony, 
then things begin to settle down. And then if we, with that relative subtleness, we learn how to take care of the mind better so it becomes a cleaner instrument, more peaceful, more calm, more in the moment, then it's easier to catch more and more. We get a little closer to the intention. But don't make a big deal out of seeing it because it's really, you know, that word sankara <coughs> that includes intention, chedana, um, it's really just the mechanism of mental activity. And, you know, it's always, there's always contact. We're having an experience and contact dredges up all the mental content that is somehow related to the contact, that what's happening in this moment. Then anything from the past that relates at all to what I'm experiencing right now, it sort of is available, including a mixture of intentions, you know, to turn away, to get interested or say something or do something. So there's, it's so wild and alive, the movement of intention. But we can get a sense of planting seeds of suffering, planting seeds of release. We can begin to, not a, I don't think it's ever a perfect sense, but just a better and better sense How'd that go? You know, you finish something or you're in the middle of something. How am I relating now? What what kind of impressions are getting left in the heart? And even if we don't get an answer, a clear answer, just that interest, like we're valuing the sensitive heart because it's showing us what sort of seeds are getting planted. That's why it's so nice at the end of the day you know, like because there's baggage, seeds that have gotten planted, we tend to want to read a book or watch TV right until we fall asleep so we don't have to feel what's left over from the day. So instead, you know, as a practitioner, we consciously create some time where we're lying in bed, we're not using TV or a novel, we're not totally ready to fall asleep, and there we are for, you know, 10, 30 minutes, whatever it is, comfortably, safely in bed, feeling what's left over from the day. And it might be moments of real gratitude and like appreciation for the wisdom that's alive in our life and how we navigated difficult situations in a relatively skillful way. And there may be several of those. Oh, But with wisdom, then we realize, I'm so glad to see that. I'm so glad to feel what that feels like, because it's kind of a monument for, don't do that again, honey. Right? It reminds us, oh yeah, when it's like that and you act like that or think like that or speak like that, then there's this yucky feeling like this. The mind lying there in bed connects the dots and we become a little bit wiser. Oh yeah, that didn't help. That wasn't good. Don't do that again. But not in a scolding way, just in a, we're kind of using our life as a teacher. We're taking in the lessons that life teaches. Because otherwise it gets buried. And all, you know, what we are left with is just a lot of unexamined pain. But now it's, you know, two weeks later, it's really of no value to us because there's nothing to discern except energetically my body's really tight. And so I'm more desperate for entertainments and distractions because I can't stand to be with my body and with myself. Because when I settle down, I feel all that leftover stuff. And, you know, when some of our friends or when we're that friend, when we're in a rough spell in our life, we'll recognize those moments when I'm totally, desperately in need of one entertainment after another because I really don't want to feel what I'm feeling. And we're kind of running. Yeah, thanks, Dave. We have time for a couple more. What else comes? Oh, yeah, Julan. Thank you, Mark, for giving such a good talk. Um, I am intrigued about the idea, like I, 
I was playing the movie in my head of like what a day in, in Mark's life must look like. And, you know, like we all come to you <laughs> and look for guidance. And I'm struggling in my own life with, uh, it's, it's a boundary issue, but it's actually kind of how do I stay grounded um, when buffeted by all of the intense emotions of others in the role that I'm in right now professionally. Yeah. And, you know, trying, I know that when I can show up in a skillful, calm way, I can be like my nervous system can serve as a grounding mechanism for those around me. And that's powerful and it feels really good. And I, you know, I'm just like, whoo. I'm still learning, but it feels really good when I do that. But there are times when, um, and I'm, I'm paying attention more, like what kind of, like what to be watchful for. How do you do it? What do you do when somebody, or you're in a situation and someone's in a place of desperation and they just have all sorts of um, anxiety and they're overwhelming? Like, Yeah, I mean, how, yeah. it's easy because I left the public schools. That's where yeah. Jalan works. And I work at a really nice Dharma center. <laughs> and part of doing this is that, you know, I can live in a way where the exposure is workable. And each of us, some, and there are, you know, who knows what the percentage is, but probably most human beings, they don't really have the option about how much exposure to chaos and ill will and suffering that they just are swimming with just because of the particular circumstances of their lives and where they live and what they have to do to earn a living. There, there may not be any options. But to the degree that there's some options, we, we want a life where we're not reinforcing distractedness and numbness and reactivity of greed and aversion, right? We don't want to reinforce, they're called the three, sometimes the three poisons, but the three unwholesome roots of greediness, hatefulness, which would include fear is a kind of aversion, and delusion, distraction, denial, disconnection. That's all in one category. We don't want to be relating in ways that strengthen those tendencies in the mind. We want to be relating in ways that strengthen the tendency of letting go or generosity, the tendency of kindness, and the tendency of caring, right, or of compassion. So that's the interesting question. Like when you're getting to that tipping point where you're losing your balance because you've got two more students you have to see or whatever, and you're, st and you're already finding it hard, then the question is, what, if anything, can be done so that I don't reinforce numbness, I don't reinforce you know, anything that will leave a heavy impression in the heart? What can be done? And you might find that there's some things like ways of getting out of the box that can really change it. Like just one example, some humor. Like one of the things you'll notice, I worked for a while in the schools, and the healthier people, they had relationships often with other staff, but also with students, where they could immediately bring some humor. And it's almost like a reset when it's really healthy humor. It's just like whatever load we've been carrying and the, and the armor that has come with it, it's just there's a reset and we're fresh and light. So humor can be really, and love, but not kind of love as a should or compassion as a should, but just basic friendliness toward herself, towards others, can help. And uh, deep insight. <laughs> Where the mind knows how to see it's all nature. Because what that does is it takes away the weight of Julan having to be skillful or Julan having to help. Because the mind, the heart touches a place where it's not afraid of the enormity of suffering. And it turns out you can be more there for your students and their suffering when you're not afraid of their suffering, not afraid of it continuing, not afraid of it getting worse. Though, of course, we don't want it to get worse. We want it to go away. 
But we know we don't hold all the cards, nor does the student hold all the cards. So we have to be okay with however it plays out. And if we're there afraid that bad stuff might happen, it gets in the way of really being there for the student or for you know whoever we're interacting with. Yeah, good luck, Julan. <laughs> Time for one more comment or question, if there is anything. Any thoughts about practice that come to mind? Sharings from your own path that you'd like to share with the group? What you've learned along the way, navigating your life? Let's leave it here then. We'll take a moment, let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. And a few words from the Dhammapada. It's a collection of verses from the early tradition. Often um, words that the Buddha spoke in other discourses. So this is a short passage where the Buddha says, whose minds are well developed in the factors of awakening, who delights in non-clinging, relinquishing, grasping, resplendent, all the outflows ended. They in the world are unbound. So may it be so for all of us. May we realize that freedom. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.